Amen. Thank you for praying for him. Um, it's uh, quite a thing, isn't it? So today I'm looking at the call of God. We're going to particularly look at Elisha and the call of Elisha because all of us uh, face the call of God on our life. And I mean, in, whenever God speaks to us, there's a call of God on our life. We read this Bible. It says, you know, love your wife or be patient with your kids. or whatever. Call of God on your life. You either go, don't want to, and you respond in a way that goes, Haha, I know God's calling me, but I'm not really interested in forgiving this person. I'm not interested in loving that person. I'm not interested in giving up my time to serve in Sunday school. I'm not interested in all those things. Or we receive the call of God in our lives, and it can be to a whole range of things, and we respond to it. And throughout the Bible and throughout our own lives, we daily face the call of God upon our life, whether it be in some ministry in church, whether to homeschool or something, whether to move away, or even these major life calls like going abroad on mission or whatever. There are calls of God on our life simply by opening up the Bible. And we have a choice. And people in the Bible had a choice. Jonah went, you want me to go that way? I'm going that way. And you'll meet believers who do exactly the same. They've suddenly stopped coming to church. And often you'll find that the real root of it all is that there was a call of God, but I don't want it. I don't want to be in an environment anymore where I might hear more of that stuff. I want to run in the opposite direction. It's the same for all of us. And if you're anything like me, sometimes when God calls you to something, it can be the smallest thing or the biggest thing. Sometimes you just jump and do it. Sometimes you go, do I have to, God? And he goes, yes. And you go, really? And he goes, yes. And it takes you on a process. And other times you really wrestle with it for a long term. I I don't want to do that. I know you want me to do it, but I don't want to do it. And often we, if we're honest, we disobey because the way it works is something like this. You could be in a meeting and you feel there's an appeal for money or something and you feel the Lord just say to you, give a hundred quid to that. And you immediately rise up in faith. Then you get home. And you've realized, oh, I've got to pay for the van exhaust this week. I've got to pay for, uh, you know, some new clothing or something for the kids. Da, da, da. I don't think I can do that, hundred. And even though it was birthed in the Holy Spirit and we knew it was from God, we somehow just allow it to seep through. If you're anything like me, by the way, you're far more diligent in getting money in than you are letting money go out. If I'm owed money, I'm a self-employed person. If I'm owed money, as soon as I finish that job, the bill goes out. And, and I'm checking that the money's coming in. I, I wish I was as diligent in generosity. Because sometimes I let little things slip like that. And I'm humbling myself here, but I don't think I'm the only one. I think all of us sometimes wrestle with the call of God on our lives. And dare I say it, maybe there isn't a person in this room who hasn't at least once disobeyed the call of God upon their life. Whether it's for a small thing, to not lose your temper, or a big thing. Well, that could be a big thing, actually. But anyway... Uh, Whatever it is, I suspect I'm not the only one. So let's have a look at the call of God upon our lives and what we can learn from Elisha. You see, the Bible says, let's be hearers and not uh, not just hearers, but doers of the word too in James. It's critical, isn't it? We, we can endlessly... I love it when Francis Chan says something about, you know, he can tell his daughter to clean her room. You may have heard this one. And she comes back and says, oh, I've learned the Greek for cleaning the room. And he goes, yeah, that's fine, but can you clean your room? And then he goes, oh, I'm going to call a meeting on the best way that we can clean this room. And then he comes back, yeah, but can you just clean the room? And this is what we sometimes do as believers, even as churches. 
There's a call. And so we'll study it. We'll study the Greek. We'll do this. We'll do that. We'll have meetings. Anything but actually doing it. And so it is with the Bible sometimes. We read something that's pretty clear as day and we try and just avoid it. And the Bible says, be doers of the word and not just hearers. Now, this is my premise today. And I can't prove it scientifically. And I can't 100%. I think I almost can, but I can't necessarily. I haven't got time to do it today. Prove it 100% from the Bible. But this is my premise. That there will not be a call of God upon your life that doesn't involve some cost. But I'm also going to be bold and say, but you can never outgive God. The reward of obeying the call of God in your life will always exceed the cost. And sometimes the cost is a lot. But I still reckon the reward is greater. So even Jesus, who took the biggest cost of all, said for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He knew what was the other side of it, and that is bringing you and me into family, along with millions of people throughout the world, including Vietnam, that we've said today. So for the joy set before him, he goes, this is going to be terrible, but the reward is going to be even greater. When you have kids... You know the cost as soon as you get pregnant, ladies, don't you? It's costly. There's no, no two ways about it. There is no good call of God in anyone's life that doesn't involve some cost. And if you're hanging around waiting for some cost-free call on your life, you will wait forever. It just doesn't exist. But I want to encourage you that usually, hopefully, <laughs> when you've had the kid, you're really glad you've had them, okay? My mum was totally depressed when she found out she's pregnant with me. That's another story. But the point is, normally... I mean, look at um, Ali here. I mean, women, they go back for more. It's costly. It hurts like crazy. There's, you cannot tell me there's no cost in parenting. Right from the start, right from pregnancy, right from birth. But I assume Ali knows the reward that children are a blessing from the Lord because she keeps going back for more. As do others. Okay? And so... So it is with every call of God on our life. There is no cost-free call. And sadly, so often we bail out before we even get going because we go, oh, we can see the cost. And the cost puts me off. Oh, if anything today, as we look at Elijah, I hope that people will maybe revisit some areas, maybe their lives where they thought, nah, that's just too much. You expected me to do that, God? And actually go, you know what? It's going to be tough. It has been tough. It will continue to be tough. But I trust you, God, that the reward will always be greater. If not here, and I believe the reward is often manifested. In fact, nearly always manifested here on earth. But if not, at least you have the promises of Scripture that Jesus said. Anybody who gives up family or fields for my sake, wow, the reward in heaven is going to be massive. So even here, I think you see the reward. But if not, certainly in eternity, there is great reward as we embrace any sacrificial living for Jesus. Well, let's have a look at Elijah in First uh, Kings 19. And uh, that might come up now, starting at verse 19. First Kings 19, 19. Talking about Vietnam, there's that song, wasn't there? No, 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 19 by Paul Harcastle. This is First Kings, no, 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 19, no, 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 19. So... <laughs> So uh, Elijah went from there. What I love about Elijah and Elisha is that they saw probably a more miraculous signs and wonder type period in Israel's history than any other couple of people. 
And sometimes we think that all the signs and wonders will come in the midst of revival, in the midst of all of that. They usually come in the hardest times. Because that's when people are really most desperate to see a move of God. And if you think when Elijah was ministering, Elijah was ministering, his most famous moment on Mount Carmel, grim, grim period in Israel's history. Killing all the true prophets of Baal. Jezebel trying to destroy everything of God. That's when the signs and wonders really came. Don't ever, you know, feel that we have to have some sort of fantastic time in order to see God move. It's often in some of the hardest times that we see the most, that God in his mercy and his grace goes, they're going to really need it right now. I'm going to show my hand in the face of this terrible persecution. That's why you get such great stories of incredible events in some of the most persecuted environments. Anyway, that's an aside, but this is the context. If you think of Elijah, he has just been to Mount Carmel. He's had this incredible victory, but it's taken an awful lot out of him. Some of you who have obeyed the call of God on your life, and it's been costly, it is costly. And there can be a time afterwards and you think, I don't want to do that again. That was really hard. And so if you remember, Elijah goes to God and goes, can I die please now and go to heaven? I've had enough of this life. It's too hard. And God goes, okay, you can. But you've got some jobs to do. He doesn't say quite that. But he says, no, I'll refresh you. I'll restore you again. But he, he recognizes Elijah is getting on. He's done the battles. He's maybe battle weary. And he wants a successor. And so he goes to the Lord. And the Lord says, just in the, a few verses before, he says, uh, anoint to Elijah, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. Anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel, to succeed you as prophet. And so he gives Elijah some instructions. Elijah says, could I just hand this on a bit now? And he says, yes, the man you're going to hand it on to is Elisha. That just brings us into the story. And I love it when you have somebody like John, Tony and Pete here, because it's exactly that. There is John, Tony going on, you know, getting the call of God to start this. It goes to a certain point and then already there is a successor in place. And this is the way the kingdom of God often is. So that just brings us up to this passage. So Elijah, in obedience to the call of God to anoint Elisha, went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elijah then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elijah left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. So, The story starts, if you like, or this part of the story starts with obedience from Elijah to go and find Elisha. And it says he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Now, I suspected something, but I did confirm with Roger the farmer when I came in that my farming knowledge is not great. But I said, Roger, probably Elijah was a pretty big farmer. You know, he had 12 pairs of oxen Now, in that day, to have one pair of oxen, I think you'd be doing fairly well, as it is in many third world countries right now. 
He had 12 pairs of oxen, and he was driving the 12th pair. So, I checked with Roger. I said, when it comes to combining, not every farmer's got a combine. Not every farmer's got a forager. Nearly all of them have got a tractor. But when it comes to certain harvesting, they will get somebody in and pay them to do the combining or whatever. That's right. And so it is, I suspect, very much with Elisha. He's a very successful businessman. He's got 12 pairs of oxen. He's leading one. And he's probably got a man on each other tractor, if you like, in today's terms, doing the work around that area. And probably, if you needed a lot of plowing done, you probably, I'm surmising, but it seems pretty likely that you would go to Elijah and contract him to come and plow your field. I don't think he had enough to keep land he may have done to keep 12 oxen going, but even then he was still a big businessman. So this guy is at work when he gets the call of God upon his life. And so it will be for most of you. There aren't many people I know who just do nothing and then wait for a call of God. Usually they're busy doing what they can do somewhere, doing the normal stuff of life. You look through the Bible, everyone's doing their normal business, whether it's treading grapes in a wine press or whatever. They're about their normal business and God just breaks in and puts a call of God on your life. That's not just the big calls. That can be the small calls, like, you know, how to maybe behave in your family. You can be walking down the street, just going to do something, and then Holy Spirit just whispers in your ear, I want you to do this. So normally, you're not looking sometimes for the call of God. It sort of comes to you. So Elijah found Elisha. He's plowing the 12th yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Now this is quite a visible and demonstrative dramatic thing that Elijah does. Elijah would have been known, Elijah, as the main prophet of God in that generation. And he comes up, takes off his cloak, his mantle, some versions call it, walks up to Elijah as a symbolic act that this now rests on you and puts this big cloak on Elisha. Now, it's interesting, and I don't know why, but a lot of the Old Testament prophets, right up to John the Baptist, if you think about them, used to wear, contrary to the white-suited uh, televangelists of these days, they used to wear really hairy, you know, messy, goaty, I don't know, just rough and ready old things. But it was the sign of being a prophet that you wore this old thing, this robe of hair, or whatever it was. And when he walks up to him, places that on him. It's very clear. This is a prophetic anointing upon Elijah. And so that's what Elijah does. Now, I don't know how far he walks away and how long Elijah stands there thinking, ooh, wow, that's amazing. But it says this. Elijah then left his auction and ran after Elijah. So he must have had enough time to think about it for Elijah to get at least 100 yards away, maybe 400 yards away, maybe half a mile away, I don't know. It's good at the end of the day, if God puts a dramatic call on your life to think about it, at least for a minute, surely. At least for two minutes. And so, this incredible thing happens, he receives this mantle. Elijah is quite a character, isn't he? He obviously just goes plonk, and then goes marching off. Leaving Elijah to stew on the call of God. It's not long. 
And he goes, I'm going. I'm responding near enough immediately to this call of God via Elijah. Elijah is the agent of grace, if you like. And so he goes after Elijah. He says this to Elijah. Let me kiss my mother and father goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Going back to the cost again, just remind ourselves here, we have Elisha, prosperous, doing well, and with a family that he loves, because he wants to kiss them goodbye. This isn't some dutiful British, just let me say goodbye to my parents. You know, I have no closeness with them. I don't really like them, but it's the British thing to do. I'll say goodbye and bid my farewell, and off I'll go. This is a man who loves his mom and dad. He wants to give them a big kiss, both of them. It's costly. Thankfully, Jesus said, you know, I said it earlier, but anybody who leaves family and fields, interesting, isn't it? It's exactly what Elijah does. Leaves family and fields for my sake will receive a hundred times blessing. But that doesn't take away the cost of saying goodbye when you're in a close family. As I said, you know, my brother on that, that there isn't the closeness maybe in our family. But in, this is a guy for whom to leave his mother and father will be very, very costly and sad for both, both ways. But also he's leaving a prosperous business. So he says, let me just kiss my mother and father goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah said. What have I done to you? Now, when I read this line, what have I done to you? What does it mean? So I read the commentaries to see what they thought. And they all seemed to agree. The only thing is what I thought it meant didn't agree with the commentaries. So you'll have to decide whether the great theologians are right or whether this half theologian from the scarred is right. But the point is, probably they're right, okay? But I think I just need to say what I think and then you can weigh it all up. And they're not too far apart anyway. But all the theologians say, the reason he asks this question, what have I done to you, is because he's going to go back to his family to say goodbye properly and have a big kiss and cuddle. And he's hoping that he won't forget the call of God on his life while he's there. And he goes, you know what? don't think I'm going to go now. I like my family too much. And it's a nice little business I've got here. And some people suggest that Elijah saying, what have I done to you? Go back and speak to your parents, but don't forget what I've just done to you. That's what the official view is. But you know what? I've got a hunch that it's something a little bit different. That Elijah knows the cost of ministry. He knows the cost of being badly thought of. He knows the cost of Jezebel running around the country trying to kill him. He knows the cost of extreme testing and trial. And he's going, what have I done to you? I'm actually going to lead, put you through now some of the same stuff. And it starts with the cost of saying goodbye to your parents and your family. The reason I said, say this is because only about six months ago, a pastor I knew uh, said to me that his son has really been, in fact, he's now a pastor, his son. So it's maybe a year ago. But he said, you know, when my son said to me, I feel the call of God to be a pastor. He said, part of me went, no, don't do it. Don't do it. I know how painful it can be. I know how horrible it can be. And I have to say, he'd had a particularly horrible year, that guy at that time. So I'm not saying every year as a pastor is horrible, but he'd had a really, really rough year, at which point his son says, I feel the call of God 
to be a pastor too. And he said everything in him wanted to say no. In other words, what have I done to you? I don't want you to go through some of the stuff I've been through. But he said, I I could not interfere with the things of God in in my son's life. And his son is uh, now a pastor. He's actually loving it. But he will have his hard times just as we all do. And it's not unique to pastors, is it? You have your hard time in this business, that business, every type of business in your family, everything. So I'm not, you know, playing the hard done by pastor bit. But the point is, I believe there's an element here, possibly, where Elijah is saying, what have I done to you? Right away now, as you respond to this call of God, there will be some cost. There will be some hardship. So Elijah left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. I mean, this is dramatic response to the call of God on our lives. And wow, that we could be much more like this, whether it's a small thing or a big thing. We hear the word of God, we hear the call, and we just chuck the rest out and we turn 180 degrees, 100% into the call. Incredible. So Talk about burning your bridges. There's such a sense of, I am out of here. This is finished now, this type of work. I'm going to burn my plow just to make a fire. I mean, be like a tractor, just saying, well, I can make a bit of wood out of the tires and we'll burn it. I don't know, whatever it is. But this is a living tractor. It's two oxen. And he goes, and let's fry the meat up. Let's have a big feast. I'm off. There's such a clear break from that life to this new life. Now, those of you who maybe have histories of addiction, you know it has to be like that. It can't be just going to have the odd drink here and there. It's like the call of God is now change, 100%. No going back whatsoever. For many of us in other areas, there just has to be a clean break. Burn it, destroy it, eat it, whatever. New, something new. I have to go new have to just do this and not a bit of that and a bit of this and so there's this very dramatic statement really from Elijah that just goes I'm out I remember when I went off to Bible college in 1993 uh, I'd been a bit of a punk rocker I had a very lovely record collection colored vinyl seven inch singles 12 inch singles by all these indie bands oh boy I'd love to have those records now no I wouldn't and um, the thing is they were worth quite a bit and I remember going to the pub down at Calstock where all the indie people hung out Brought all my record collection. Now, I'm going to Bible college. Anyone want to, buy, anyone want to buy any of these records to help fund me to go? And people, I'll give you five quid for those three. I'll give you ten quid for those. Got rid of about a third of it. You know what it's like. And then I just thought the rest two thirds, said two of my best friends, just take them, have them. Clean break. I didn't need that, did I? I didn't need to really hang on to that. I didn't need any of that. So it's gone. It's gone. And it hurts at times. You know, as a part of your life, you just go, that's it. I'm off, something new. And so Elijah, Elisha makes this very clean break. And then it says he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. God's servant, really. But the means by which he was following God was at this stage to be mentored by Elijah. And that's exactly what happens for a couple of years. Elijah mentors Elisha. And then Elijah is transported off to heaven. And Elisha carries on the ministry. Now, I'm nearly finished, but I thought, wouldn't it be appropriate... Because we've talked a bit about the cost here on Elisha. Look at some of the rewards. Let's look at Second Kings number 4. Second Kings verse 4, starting at 1. Elijah's life 
had these sorts of stories in it. This is what he saw. And if we're believers, if we are born again, we get excited about seeing God move, don't we? We get excited when someone becomes a believer. We get excited when somebody gets healed. We get excited about the things of God more than anything else. And this is the sort of things that Elisha saw. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. This is tough, isn't it? This is a a humble man who's followed God. He's died. And where's it got him? It didn't get him any money. And so now his two sons are skinned, his wife's skinned, and they're about to be sold into slavery. I mean, this is serious. Just ponder on that. You're a parent. You know, your husband has been a faithful man of God. And now he's died. No social security in that system, in that country. What are you going to do? You're on your own. You've got your two boys. You've run into debt. And now the creditor's saying, lovely, I'll take your two boys. They can be my slaves. You can imagine a cry in her heart. She cries out to Elisha. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Get loads of them. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and kept pouring. And all the jars were full. She said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. What an amazing experience that Elijah was privileged because he followed the call of God to be used by God to do. Imagine the joy that he went home that night. Not just that night, but probably for the rest of his life on earth. He'd never forget that night. I remember when I saw God do that. An old version, really, of the, of the feeding of the 5,000. Complete miraculous event. But not only that, I saved two boys from slavery. I saved a widow from that grief. Not I, God did it. You know what I'm saying, though. But he was part of it. He saw it happen. You read Second Kings, you'll see other great stories in Elijah's life. And so, we see the truth here that this man just cleanly went for it with God. Cleanly obeyed the call of God on his life. And wow, did it open up to him a world of tremendous blessing. It wasn't without sacrifice. It was with sacrifice. But I guess that there ain't nothing much good that happens to us without some sacrifice. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. Hey? You know, my sons love football. They're doing very well at it. But if they want to go further, there will be sacrifice. They'll have to make decisions. People have to make decisions. When you have children, immediately sacrifice starts. And you have to decide, am I up for this or am I not? You want a good family, there will be some sacrifice. You want a rubbish family that's fallen to bits, just be selfish. Don't embrace any cost. If you want a good marriage, don't embrace any... uh, Do embrace cost. If you want a bad marriage, just be selfish. Just goes all about me, my time, my rights, my whatever. And so it goes on. So this principle is so big for the whole of our lives. Well, we could go into further stories of Elisha, 
But I thought we'd just finish on the gospel, you see, because as I already said, Jesus is the one who embraced the most sacrifices in heaven. It's beautiful. But the call of God, the Father, comes on him to leave all that and come to a pretty sick, nasty earth, still is, live a sinless life, obviously, fulfill that calling to die on the cross and then be raised again to take us out of slavery just as Elisha took those two guys away from slavery. My very last little story, and some of you know it, is about the two Moravian slaves in 1732. Sorry, they weren't slaves. Two Moravian missionaries from Germany in 1732, Johann Dober and David Nietzschmann. And they felt the call to minister to African slaves on the island of St. Thomas and St. Croix in the Danish West Indies. This was radical. 1732. At the time, to just get on a ship and go to the other end of the world, risk your life. They wanted, and this is radical for the era, which was, if you like, just colonially racist, to think there was value in slaves. But these two Moravian missionaries, and really they started a huge missionary movement that God was for all. God was for all people. They wanted to bring the grace and the hope because slavery is rough. Let's bring future hope at least. Even if there's not a lot of current hope, let's bring future hope to these slaves. And people said, how are you going to do it? The owner of the island has no time for God whatsoever. He's a greedy man. He wants to maximize his income. He doesn't want anybody getting involved and bringing God's ways into this situation. And they said this. They said, we will be sold into slavery if that's what it takes to reach these people. Now, the story's been embellished and many people say they actually did become slaves. They didn't. But it is a clear fact and a clearly recorded fact and the Danish queen at the time was so impressed that she arranged their passage because they were willing to become slaves if it would win slaves for Christ. What an incredible cost they were willing to embrace. And as they left on the ship, this is what they shouted. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. They basically screamed out, Jesus done so much for us. He suffered so much for us. May he receive the reward, whatever we can do for his suffering. It's a fantastic attitude. And that attitude, that became the slogan of the Moravian missionary movement to this day. May the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. Well, as it happened, they were also carpenters and they managed to get work on the Danish West Indies as carpenters. They didn't actually have to go into slavery, but they began to minister to the slaves they were there two years. People began to become Christians. Because they took the forerunning, when they went back to Denmark and Germany, as is often the case, it just takes somebody to go, and then others go, if they can do it, we can do it. And many more Moravians began to get on that boat and go to St. Thomas and St. Croix. And in the first sort of five or ten years, 13,000 people were baptized in those islands before any other group of missionaries came. And to this day, because of people like that, the West Indies is one of the strongest Christian areas in the world. But it took people like this who said, I'll 
take a cost. I'll do something sacrificial. Can you imagine the joy for those two guys? We talked about Jesus, the supreme example. But can you imagine the joy of David and uh, Johann? As first of all, they go. They embrace the cost. They say goodbye to their parents, again, not knowing if they'd come back. Do you know that many missionaries in the 18th century put all their belongings in a coffin and put it on the ship? They knew they're never coming back. So they couldn't afford a coffin or whatever. So they just put their few belongings in a coffin and got on the ship and went. But can you imagine the joy of David and Johann as they got there and then saw people come into faith and then hundreds and then going back and then seeing loads of others going out and then hearing that thousands are turning to Jesus Christ in the West Indies of their alive today. They might go hundreds of thousands now have in the West Indies, but it all started somewhere like that. Let us pray. I don't think that uh, God will be laying such a dramatic call on every one of us because simply there's so much to do in the kingdom of God. Some positions are seemingly a little bit less glamorous, but equally important. You know, so I'm not suggesting today that every one of you should be waiting to hear some call of God to Mongolia or something like that. But boy, let's just be responsive to the calls that are that big that big, that big. And trust God. Whenever we're tempted to go the cost, I'm not interested, God. Whenever we're tempted to just not do it because it seems unattractive, to somehow trust that, God, I cannot really ever outgive you. I can't somehow. I don't know a Christian who's sacrificed an awful lot for the Lord who goes, I wish I never did. Now, sometimes you will give kindly to somebody and they'll throw it back in your face and it'll hurt. But as a, as a lifestyle, I don't know believers who go, I really regret that day when I really asked God to really come into my life even more, to consecrate myself really further. I don't know believers who go, worst thing I ever did that, deciding to follow Jesus. It's always the opposite, isn't it? It scared the pants out of me, but I'm so glad God asked me to do it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that is a, a, a primary sense of calling. But also we thank you for your spirit who is more than capable of whispering a word in our ear at any time, in any place, directly or through another believer. And we thank you, Lord, that there's a marriage between word and spirit. We can't somehow believe God's calling us to do X when it's contrary to what the Bible says. So we have that wonderful balance of Scripture and check. But Lord, I pray, oh God, that all of us would have a revelation that however costly some of the calls of God upon our life are, that it opens a way to much greater blessing. But at the same time, Lord, the call of God can be hard. It can be painful. It can be costly. And I pray for anybody who's currently knowing that full well, and knowing that they're doing what God wants, but it just seems a bit hard, I pray, oh God, that you would encourage them, strengthen them, fill them with your Holy Spirit afresh. And I pray for those who are wrestling with the call of God on their lives, that pretty much are certain what God wants, but at this minute have too much fear to obey, or, or, or selfishness, whatever it is, we're all the same. I pray, Lord, that we will be freed from the lies of the enemy that seek to convince us that it's somehow not worth obeying God. And I pray as we open ourselves up 
Every one of us. Lord, we invite you this week, next week, next month, next year to always, oh God, put the call of God on our lives that you want for us. May we not be people like Jonah who just want to run the opposite way, but may we be people more like Elisha who jump and run and burn bridges if necessary, not in a bad way, but in a good way, and just go for it, all in for Jesus Christ. May your Spirit lead us, may your Spirit strengthen us, and may your Spirit excite us to the things of God. Lord, we want to see you move in our lives and other people's lives. And if there's a cost involved, help us to endure the cost for the joy set before us. I pray for every parent here who knows the cost of parenting all too well. Again, they would be encouraged, encouraged to continue to lead sacrificial lives for the benefit of their children. In Jesus' name, amen.